Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. This is a special episode of the podcast, where as well as speaking about personal bereavement, we'll also be talking about national grief and how that can affect us both collectively and on an individual level. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Julia Samuel. Julia is one of the UK's leading psychotherapists who's been working in the field of grief counselling for more than 30 years. She's also a well-known speaker, podcaster, and best-selling author. Her books include Grief Works, Every Family Has a Story, and This Too Shall Pass. Julia was awarded an MBE in 2016 in recognition of her services to bereaved children. Julia Samuel, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Very pleased to be on the couch with you, Jason. It's good. How are you? I'm good, actually. I got an early train, so I've been up since five, but I actually feel rather sprightly, so yeah. That's good. Well, it's great to have you. And we're doing a slightly different episode today. So we're, um, we're focusing on national grief. And I think what we want to do is acknowledge the impact of the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and the impact that's had on the nation. Also to acknowledge the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think we'll get to chat about that in, in due course. But before we do that, can I just start by asking if you could talk a bit about your work and what led you to sort of focus and specialise on bereavement and grieving? So I think like most of us in those sort of helping professions, I am the daughter of two parents who were traumatically bereaved when they were very young. So by the time my mum was 25, her mother, her father and her sister and her brother had all died suddenly and unexpectedly. So she was an orphan And my dad, his father and brother also died tragically and and unexpectedly. And yet they never talked about them. So there were these black and white photographs around the house of particularly my aunt and uncle. My uncle was killed in the war at Arnhem. But I knew, I didn't know how they died. I knew no stories about them. And in our family, I was told that everything was fine you know, just keep going, carry on. And, you know, there is something to be said for that. I think we need a bit of grit and being able to kind of move forward and, you know, have a stiff upper lip when you go out in the world. But when you're in the privacy and intimacy of your families, I think you need to be able to be open and expressive. They didn't know that. They had no understanding of that. They were children of parents who'd fought in the First World War. They fought in the Second World War. So... There is no doubt that it being an environment where I couldn't understand what was going on and what looked on the outside as fine, didn't feel fine on the inside, is what fermented me to be a therapist, to be curious, to observe, to listen, and to know what's actually going on inside people rather than what they're looking like. 
it's interesting that the conversations around death and dying and whether people have them or not um, and what they talk about and what they don't talk about and why and it's interesting also actually because my mother her father died when she was 11 and it had a huge impact on her and so I remember from a very 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 young age always being told the story of his death the kind of last hours and moments and how that was for her and how it was for her mum and she would she would often talk about that and kind of replay it for want of a better word and I do wonder how that also impacted on my career um, as well and my career choices it's it's interesting how do you think conversations about death and dying have changed over the time you've been working in that field so I've been working with families in my NHS role for 25 years, I think I've been in, in the field like 33 years, was very much, you know, what you don't say doesn't hurt you, forget and move on. And the practice in hospitals was to pr- try and protect parents from seeing babies that died or kind of facing um, death. And, you know, there's been significant research, which I think has really helped us understand the importance of truth-telling and honesty and having very difficult and painful conversations. But I think societally, although I think, you know, one of the strange upsides of the pandemic is that there have been more conversations around the kitchen table about, you know, what do you want if you die? And, you know, that death has become more current But I think there is an underlying kind of magical thinking is that if I talk about or think about my own death or my dying or of people that I love, it will somehow hasten it. And so if I kind of turn away and hope it happens to other people, then maybe I'm safer. But I think thanks to organisations like you and to the UK Commission on Bereavement and, you know, events, I think slowly talking about death and dying is opening up and it is changing. I think we may talk about death and dying, but we very rarely recognise that we will all be bereaved as well as being mortal. So I don't think we talk about what grief feels like or what the experience is at all, so that when it hits people, most of the people who walk through my door feel that they're doing it wrong, that there's something you know, they're going mad and everybody else has got this sorted because they don't recognise that a very natural part of grieving is to feel like you're going mad. I'm interested in the outpouring of national grief around the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, yet that running alongside this either hesitance, resistance or fear about talking about death and dying They're like two polar opposites running together. I think all of us, in some way, had a relationship with the Queen. You know, she was, you know, in our pockets, on our money, she was on our stamps. And she was this steady, reliable, predictable sort of icon in our life when so much was uncertain, unpredictable, 
you know, she always came for particular occasions, whether it's Trooping of the Colour or the Christmas message or, you know, her powerful pandemic message, that we built a relationship with her. And as human beings, we like predictability, we like safety, we like continuity. So she represented something very safe for that us. And of course, most of us never met her, so we didn't really know her. So we could put on to her all sorts of ways of being which she may well have been but we can't ever possibly know and so she I think she was significant so I think people were grieving that continual relationship with someone but also Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said very poignantly you can't cry someone else's tears and I think what she kind of opened up in many of us is our collective grief through the pandemic of all the, you know, millions of losses that we all had, but also our own losses of our own mothers or our grandmothers or our partners. And it put us in touch with our own feelings, which were not defending and blocking, which we often do when it's our own stuff, because we, we find it difficult to kind of face our own pain. So in some ways, I think she enabled us to open and release lots of emotions that were to do with her, some of them, but a lot of them were to do with our own losses because we didn't defend against them. And I think there was also something unbelievably powerful of her as a uniting force that we could come to in this pilgrimage of the way, you know, hundreds of thousands of people did, even in villages and towns where she didn't lie in state, but where they came to memorial church services and areas where they, where, where they were encouraged to meet. And it was that connection. This, you know, the two poles of death are the isolation and pain that someone has died and that you are forever having to face the reality that they're not physically present. And the single most important thing that can enable you to manage the death of someone you love is the love and connection to others. And I think there was something about going in a queue as strangers, leaving as close friends and sharing something together that was incredibly powerful and unifying. And I think it was powerful and unifying for us observing it, who didn't do it, as well as people who, who actually did it. I saw on social media and, um, you know, news reports of um, people who were queuing to see the Queen lying in state. Um, and lots of people were telling stories about their own experiences of loss and grief. And so I think that, you, you know, what, what you're describing there, that kind of collective, I really like to think that, you know, people have had the opportunity to be able to do that. And that also makes complete sense about your own experience of grief and loss. If the conversation's not targeted at you and directed at you, but actually you can channel that elsewhere in the death of someone else and with someone else then that might make it easier for want of a better word to 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 think about it talk about it and feel it I, I wanted to add one more thing was that I felt and I don't know if you did where there was this collective longing to unleash and be unified you know with all of the political challenges we face, the war in Ukraine, the pandemic, the splits, the fights even in families about COVID protocols, that was something 
that was unleashed of coming together. And obviously not everybody, you know, I think there were plenty of people who we didn't see who weren't in the least bit interested, but we saw millions of people wanting to connect with other people and for strangers to become neighbours and for neighbours and to join together in unity. There's something about being one that I think we have longed for in our kind of atomized split virtual reality that we've been living in. Mm. I'm London based and um, although I didn't queue to see the Queen lying in state I did go down to the palace and I think what struck me and I don't know why this struck me <laughs> but what struck me was the mix in ages and the amount of children and young people who were there who brought their flowers and who'd come along with parents or families or friends and not just small children, you know, teenagers and younger adults. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. I wonder what that, that opportunity gave children and young people when it come to, to death, dying and bereavement or might have given. I think with children and young people coming with their families, I think it's wanting to be part of something that's bigger than themselves and their family units and a kind of curiosity about this institution, the monarchy, but also wanting to be have a memory of being part of history, that they would be able to tell their children that I went to see the longest serving queen in our history's death or lying in state or to give flowers at, in Green Park, which I did too. I find it very, very moving. Mm. Um, and wanting to bank a memory, because our memories are what makes us and shapes us for the future. And also I think doing something like that as a family is very unifying, like sharing a memory. I, I was sitting on a train with someone who said to me, I'm not a monarchist. She brought her three young children, but she said, I had this compulsion to come. I had to be there, I had to be part of it. And I think it's so many things. I think it's wanting to be part of something that has meaning, that feels healing, that honours something that is beyond yourself and, you know, outside of yourself. I think it's connecting as a community. I think it's marking something significant in our history. And I think, you know, as human beings, we are narrative, story, meaning-making beings. And the thing about the monarchy is it gives us a very coherent story of a thousand years. You know, the, when I die, I will only be remembered for as long as people that know me and love me are alive. But then I'll be forgotten. The Queen will be immortal because she's going to be in our history books for as long as we have history books. So there mm. is something rather extraordinary about that. A friend of mine was away, actually, um, on a holiday when it happened, and he was texting saying how he felt like he was missing out. Yeah, I think you want to be part of something, don't we? It's, mm. It is. And the way the world observed, I got messages from friends in America and Australia and around the world saying, I'm sorry for the loss of your queen, as if she was my mother, if you know what I mean. Mm. But she was our nation's mother and a symbol of the mother and the grandmother to our nation. And I think in some ways globally she had that um power we understandably saw an increase in our Marie Curie social media channels after the queen's death and 
I've got a couple of comments which were left on social media that I just wanted to, I wondered if we could, if we could talk through some of them, because um, I think they might resonate with some of our listeners. So the first one I wanted to talk about, it struck me. My mother-in-law was 93 when she died. I felt bad for my husband because people kept saying things like, oh, well, she had a good innings, maybe so, but she was still his mum and she's still gone and he misses her. Yes, I mean, this well-intentioned trying to make you feel better by going for the positive is so damned annoying for the people listening because you know she had a good innings or you know she's better off in heaven or you know you know only the strong get the bad things or whatever that awful expression is is meant to help us feel good about it but actually what it does is feel misunderstood and that our pain is diminished that they're in some way kind of inflating the good and not acknowledging the difficult and so the thing that would be which comes from the same place but just voiced differently would be I'm so sorry that your mum died I'm so sorry and tell me talk to me and that thing of listening being able to hear that he really misses her he knows that she had a, a long life 93 is not a tragedy it's a full long life and that is also a 93-year loss for him or whatever, whenever he was born. So she's been an integral part of his life from the moment he was born. It's a very significant loss. Um, and allow for all of that complexity. Hmm. I've got another one here. My mum and dad got engaged the year the Queen became Queen. Every time I saw her on anything, it made me think of them. It's like losing them all over again. Yes, I do think that a new loss goes to the same place of our previous losses, particularly if there is a memory that's connected to them, that is, is a kind of linking memory. So that memory of um, the Queen becoming Queen when her parents got married forever links her with them and connects her to them. And I think a new loss goes to the same place in our being you know, our body remembers, our body holds the score. And so it will bring up, not feelings that she hasn't expressed, it's not like she hasn't worked through it and she hasn't done the work, but it reignites the feelings of loss of her parents. What I would imagine is if she supports herself with those feelings of loss and let them come through her, they will pass through her quicker. It won't be like, when they first died, like a new grief. It, it feels like it at the time, but actually it shifts um, quicker. My mum was the same age as the Queen and she always gave herself extra grandiosity as if being the same age as the Queen somehow meant that she had an extra connection to the <laughs> Queen. <laughs> and I mean, she has died, like my mum, she died in 2017. And talking about denial, so she was told she had six months to live and I asked her afterwards what the doctor had said. She said, darling, I've got a flu. So she was always, she used the same coping mechanism her entire life and she wasn't going to not use it when she was dying. But she absolutely, I mean, she would have literally sat in front of the telly for 12 days if she'd been alive and it put me in touch with her. And 
I felt more tears thinking of my mum and me and my mum watching the Queen. And I felt sad as well because she's been a part of my life in a distant way, like all of us. But yeah, so I can understand what that, that, that person who wrote to Marie Curie was, was feeling. Mm. We'll do one more. Um, 32 years ago today, I lost my mum. The events of the last week after the passing of our Queen, I've been crying at anything. Grief never leaves you. I think that's right. I think we, in some ways, as crying is painful, it is also releasing and healing. And so, I mean, maybe this is, isn't right, but it sort of feels like the Queen's death has put her in touch with her mum and reconnected with her mum. And that is very bittersweet. It's like, oh, there's my mum. I really love my mum. And oh, I really miss my mum. It's both. And that, of course, she's crying. And I hope that she could have a good cry. Crying is good for us. I think we somehow think that we shouldn't be crying 32 years later or what's wrong with me that I'm crying 32 years later. But, you know, in the Colin Murray Parks quote about, you know, grief being the price we pay for love, which was misattributed to the Queen, um, where we love most, we feel most and miss most and feel most tears. And yet the depth of that the depth of those feelings, the the capacity to cry them is also what makes us fantastically human and have a big heart. That when we block the tears and block the pain, that is what does us harm for our lives and for many generations. It's the things that we do to block the pain. So I would encourage her to use tissue boxes, allow herself to cry and then go and do something that cheers her up. Some of life's questions are harder than others. If you or a loved one are facing end of life or bereavement, Marie Curie is here to listen and help. Call our free support line on 0800 090 2309 or start a web chat by visiting mariecurie.org.uk forward slash support. Just moving on to think a bit more about bereavement and grief and and the importance of it in how we experience it. And I want to link that to the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, what we know is that people, many, many people didn't get those opportunities around rituals like funerals and or even being at the bedside or with their loved ones whilst they were dying. What impact does that have, Julia? I mean, I during the pandemic, I saw more suffering than I've ever witnessed in my entire career of working in bereavement. That the levels of, of pain of not being with the person that they love when they died, not having that opportunity to say goodbye, to kiss them on their forehead, to hold their hand, and to have that memory of, of having done that and seeing them die in peace. But the sort of craziness of maybe seeing them die virtually on an iPad. And then again, you know, the Queen was like mega version of how rituals are vital in managing our messy, chaotic feelings, that rituals give us this template that holds us collectively and emotionally and marks and acknowledges the significance of this person's life 
and marks their death. And through the ritual of coming together at the funeral, the opportunity to say goodbye, to have a spiritual belief or whatever your kind of understanding is, and being together and doing that and coming together and to do that. And the first task of mourning is to face the reality of the loss so that people who are neither by the bedside or by the graveside, who had no visceral physiological experience of saying goodbye in those two very significant ways, many of them said they felt like the death was surreal, that once lockdown had unlocked, they were actually at the point that the person, they couldn't fully believe that the person had died. They were just still in this awful kind of limbo. And so the work of grieving, allowing themselves to feel the pain of it is how you adjust to it. And to have that, you need a memory. You, you have to focus on the memory of seeing the coffin or holding their hand and it was cold. And that forces you to know in a way that you can't not know that this person has died. My relationship with them will continue. My love for them will never die. So it's this dual thing of facing their presence of absence and knowing that they're not there but also finding a way of having touchstones to memory to continue. And when you don't have that memory and those significant rituals and opportunities, it can really lead to prolonged grief disorder, or it can certainly, you know, grief is always painful, but it is a natural adaptive process for most people, for 90% of people. But I think it's stalled a lot of natural grieving. And another big part of it, by the way, is this kind of third arm, which is the love and connection of others, that many people were isolating on their own and didn't have their daughters, their neighbours, their friends bringing lasagna. You know, all, people always laugh about, you know, I've got a freezer full of lasagna or cottage pie or, or whatever it is, macaroni cheese. But actually, that is a really useful thing. And it's an act of love. It's a sort of you know, honouring of you and the person and put it in your freezer and you don't have to cook for your kids or yourself. And it is a way of loving. And that, that practical thing about making food, preparing food or taking food might be all that person can do because actually they might um, struggle with being able to sit down with the pain and the grief, but actually being able to provide some food and, and you know, we, we all need food. Um, but being able to do that's good for them too. And I think this other big thing which I think comes from the Queen's death and also in surprising ways emerged in the pandemic is that we help ourselves by helping others. That the, we improve our own mental health and sense of agency and self-worth when we do the shopping for our neighbour or give somebody a hug or... <laughs> you know, ring up and see how a friend is, that it does help us helping others. And I think some of that emerged and became very powerful in the pandemic, but also a lot of it got lost because of the isolation and the, and the lockdown rules. And so it was this very strange, altered universe. So the pandemic had a profound effect on us as a nation and led to a UK commission on bereavement being established. As one of the commissioners, what can you tell us, Julia, about the focus of the work which is being done? So I'm very honoured to be a commissioner. And, you know, this was a commission that was waiting to happen. So it, it has been sparked by the inequalities, the losses, the devastating pain that the pandemic 
kind of threw hundreds of thousands of people into, but it is also focusing on the structural support and bereavement that we have in the UK and how it has ne- it has not been adequate. So through the commission, we've had, you know, many different ways of exploring the support and the issues that people who are bereaved need so that we can come back with recommendations of what anyone who is bereaved in our society from whatever their background, whatever the cause of death, that they should at that time get the most effective support that they need. And I think we've, you know, it took many, many hours of work and thousands of people talking through their experience, their lived experience, also professionals talking through their experience. And I think we have distilled really excellent recommendations that people in the workplace, government, civil society, people working in in organisations, people in families can look at that and think for themselves, okay, how can I incorporate at least one or two of those things to improve the lives of people who are bereaved, not forgetting that every single one of us in society will be bereaved at some point. And they looked at the bereavement experiences of both adults and children, which is great and really important. Exactly. And and one of the big things, it's good to mention children, because obviously that's been an area I've been very involved in. One aspect of research that is shown is that the support you get at the time of the loss is the most significant factor in your capacity to get yourself back on track and living your life. And that is what has been so inadequate, is the support available to people. And the massive inequalities. For those who are listening now and are grieving and have experienced a bereavement, is there anything else you could say to them that would be helpful or that would help them? I mean, there are are so many things. I think one of the cruelties of grief is that we can turn our pain against ourselves. So to kind of be self-compassionate, be as kind to yourself on those hard days, those difficult feelings, as you would to a friend. So turn to yourself with love and compassion and choose to do things that soothe you. That may be going for a walk. It may be lighting a candle for the person that's died and talking to them. It may be bringing up a friend, it may be buying some flowers and putting it on your kitchen table, but do things that you actively and consciously know kind of soothe you and calm you because grief feels like a fire alarm in your head. It often feels like fear and puts your system on alert. So doing things that kind of bring that down enable you to think and make decisions and support yourself with more of you available. Because when you're on a hypervigilant alert, you don't think clearly and you disconnect from yourself and other people. And so, you know, the other thing I always suggest is like, get outside, go for a walk. If you can, fast walk. Because if you, being outside, moving your body shifts how you feel. You will, if it's pouring with rain, which we kind of long for now, but... You know, don't let that be a barrier to going outside because it will always, you will always feel better when you come back in, even if it means you need to have a bath and a cup of tea to warm up. And the other, the other big thing I think is this idea of continuing bonds, that the relationship with the person that's died doesn't die and finding ways to connect to them. 
And that might be through cooking. It might be through making their favourite meal. It might be by wearing their bracelet or their watch or their scarf. It might be having something by your bed that reminds you of them. I have, both my parents have died, but I ha- I have two kind of mementos that I keep very close by. One is a shell from my mum from walking on a beach with her years ago. And another is a stone from my dad. We walked up a, a hill together in Scotland. And they're very small and they're hard. I think there's something about stones and shells that kind of nature connects me to them. And I find that very extremely comforting and sort of soothing. One question some people ask is, how long does it last for and how long does it take? Um, Everybody, when they come through my door, asks me that. And my answer is that we don't get over grief. We learn to accommodate and live with it. That the intensity of the pain with the right support changes over time. The waves that feel like they come and hit you all the time at the beginning do over time become less frequent, become less intense. Although there can be certain days for no reason or because they're kind of important, significant days of memory, you can feel like yesterday, even five years later. So I think there's this Greek definition of time, which is chronos time, which is chronological time, years, and kairos time, which is felt time. And I think we can't really set a chronological time, a chronos time, but to be in touch with our kairos time. And a big part of that is giving ourselves permission to have the joy as well. The grief comes with so much pain and so many conflicting, messy feelings of fury and hate and, you know, fear and despair and loneliness. It's a real kind of awful old soup, as you know. It's not one simple, it's a tidy little word that describes a world of of pain, really. So give yourself permission if you're if it kind of the pain spits you out and gives you a breather to laugh with a friend, to watch something funny, to choose to watch something funny. At the moment, mine is Gogglebox. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, for a, while, for, a while, for a while it was friends. And then, you know, I choose small 20 minute things that shift my mindset or choose to, you know, do something that really gives you a feeling of joy it might, it might be listening to music of course that can trigger you as well but um but that we can hold both we can hold the love and the loss of the person that was so significant in our life and that being joyful finding moments of happiness moving and engaging with your life as it is now radically altered but as the life you have doesn't block the pain give yourself permission to have the two that you can have loss and restoration have loss and feel the pain and restoration and live and love again and if you can dare to love again in all of the different ways that we love love pets you know love our friends love our neighbors love our family members and also where you love most you hate most too so it's never very straightforward (laughs) but find ways of connecting and having fun and love in your life. Um, I'm going to shift a bit now in the conversation. And so so one of the aims of, of this podcast is to encourage conversations around death and dying. What we know at Marie Curie, what we know through our work is that often if people plan, if they if they can, 
if they plan for the future in relation to their death and their care and what happens afterwards and and that's that's lots of practical planning so it might be writing a will it might be writing down their funeral wishes we know that when people you know what, what we hear from people is when they do those things then uh, they feel better prepared and one of the questions we ask our guests on this podcast is whether they think about their own death. And I don't know whether you think about yours. I certainly think about mine. But um, and I've written a will. Um, but lots of people say no, no way, no. I don't think about my own death. I do think about my own death, and I mean, I think it would be very strange in my profession <laughs> where kind of you know. The majority of my working life is focused on death and dying and bereavement, not to think about my own death. And actually, it's thinking about my own death also gives me the gift of being grateful for every day that I'm alive and really kind of living fully because I really do know that I'm going to die. Um, and so with my four children, all my children are sort of fully grown up and have their own children. But I, I do things like... I send them WhatsApps of my new password for my computer and <laughs> so that they, in case I die and they go, I'm on! And they like, get the sort of emojis with the eyebrows. Um, but I've seen a lot of misery from people who can't get into their parents' phones and laptops. I mean, that it does cause a lot of misery. So I do that. And I actually met a vicar last week. I thought, I really would like you to conduct my funeral. I didn't know whether to text her and say, listen, I really want you to conduct my funeral. I don't know you very well, but I really like you. How <laughs> and, wonderful. And, cause, and she's quite a bit younger than me, so she's likely to be alive. She's about 20 years younger than me. Um, but I've told my children. And no, I, I've written a lot. I've got, Obviously, I've done a will and I've written that I don't want to be resuscitated and when we see things on telly I think I said something to one of my daughters last week watching the Queen I went oh by the way when I die I, I want this and they go okay <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's an ongoing rather kitchen table conversation that's great. Just before we start to start to wrap up I just wanted to talk a bit about legacy what it is and why it's important if it is? So I think legacy, people often think about it as your stuff, like what you're going to do with your chattels or your money. And for me, I would like my legacy to be, and it sounds a bit um, grandiose, but I'd like it to be a, fundamentally about love that, and about values and about what matters in life, which isn't the stuff. In the end of the day, the thing that matters most is love and connection, and that we know how to both give and receive love. And so, in particular with my family, with my children, my sons-in-law and my daughter-in-law and my grandchildren, it makes me cry. I want them to feel my love for them in their hearts when I've died. And that if I can manage to do that, then I'll have lived a good life. Thank you. Um, what's it meant to you today to come on the Marie Curie couch? I just feel very moved by my... I don't think I've ever said that out loud about what I'm going to... Uh, how I want to be remembered. So I feel... Yeah, it's been a moving conversation. I've said stuff I haven't said out loud before, which 
is a lovely thing to be able to do with you. So thank you. Well, Julia, Samuel, thank you so much for joining me today on the Marie Curie Couch. I've loved meeting you and it's been a real learning as well. You know, I think that kind of um, just hearing your experience and wisdom and knowledge um, has been great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Jason. Thank you for inviting me. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Panoshian. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.